right, and welcome back to the first cast. And for the month of March here, we're placing an emphasis on apologetics. Uh, apologetics always seems to come up, um, you know, throughout various topics. But for this month, we're placing a, a special emphasis on apologetics. And so today we've got a, a pretty incredible guest on to join us, Eric Hernandez. Eric spoke at our church on Sunday. And so today our topic is unapologetic parenting and what is the role of apologetics, the importance of apologetics uh, in the lives of parents as they as they raise their kids. And so Eric's going to weigh in on a lot of this. Uh, he has a, a background here. And if you if you didn't get to tune in on Sunday or be a part of our services on Sunday, uh, I would encourage you to go back to the previous episode on this podcast and uh, you know listen to his message because he lays a great foundation for us on apologetics. And so again, today's the topic is unapologetic parenting. And so I know I have three kids, 11, nine, and five, and apologetics comes up in various ways. And Eric, you want to tell us a little bit about your family and, and your kids? Uh, yeah, uh, let me first say thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a blessing to be with you. Really enjoy the time at my church. You have a, an awesome uh, congregation. So I'm really looking forward to this conference. Yeah, uh, I've been married seven years. I have two kids, a daughter who just turned 13 recently, a son who will be, who's four, will be five in September. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's uh, dad life is awesome. It is. It's, it's never uh, a dull moment. There's always something going on. The house is always loud. Uh, so before we get into talking about apologetics, uh, you know, as a parent, uh, Eric, would you just take a couple of minutes and kind of just reiterate and explain, you know, what is apologetics and kind of how that became such a big part of your life and why it's important to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> Uh, yeah, biblically speaking, apologetics is essentially just uh, giving a defense for what we believe. So it's not just, and it's not just knowing what we believe, but why we believe it. Um, when people ask me what apologetics is, I usually like to say, well, let me start by asking you two questions and let me respond as a skeptic. And I, the two questions I usually ask, the first is, why are you a Christian? And the second is, why should someone else be a Christian? And the reason I ask two questions is because oftentimes what I get for the first uh, question, why are you a Christian, is uh, some kind of a personal testimony or experience. Um, now, while, while those can definitely validate why the person themselves are Christians, uh, note it may not necessarily apply to why I should be a Christian. Uh, as an example, I did this once with a young man, and um, at first he said something like, well, uh, I'm a Christian, um, I believe in God, and I'm a Christian because God saved me from my sin. And I said, well, I don't believe in God. Um, and again, I'm playing the role of a skeptic in this. And, and I said, and neither do I believe in sin, but go ahead and explain that concept to me. So he kind of, he kind of got excited because I, I think in his mind, he thought he was going to, he was making progress. Um, and, and he says, well, sin is what separates you from God. I said, well, again, I don't, I don't believe in God, but go ahead. And he says, well, it, it's, it's what happens to It's when you bring harm into your life, when you're doing things that you shouldn't be doing. I said, well, wait a minute. You tell me you're a Christian. That sounds an awful lot like karma. And I thought Christians didn't believe in karma. And he, he kind of was stumbling. He said, can we start over? I said, sure. Okay. Why are you a Christian? Why should I be a Christian? And his next response was, well, look, and he got really serious. He said, my grandmother was dying of cancer and my church prayed every single night. We prayed uh, night after night and miraculously she got healed and the doctors couldn't explain that. So how can you explain it if there's no God? playing the role of the skeptic again, I said, well, funny, because that's the same reason I'm an atheist. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, my grandmother was also dying of cancer and my church prayed every night and yet she died. 
So either God loved your grandmother more than mine, or maybe he just doesn't exist and things happen. Um, within those few minutes, he knew what apologetics was and why he needed it. So essentially, it's, it's given articulation, um, explaining. And quite frankly, my answer to those two questions, that, as I shared at your church, I wouldn't say it's my answer, but I think the only answer you need to both questions is because it's true. And that's what apologetics is, showing the truth of what we believe and why we believe it. Um, when it comes to uh, um, parenting, this is, this is quite important because you also ask, you know, why is it important to my life? Well, growing up in church, um, I was never an atheist or an agnostic, but I definitely had questions. And there were just times where I remember growing up, I'd get in trouble with a couple of my youth pastors for asking questions. And what really bothered me was, you know, they would, they would say something like, hey, invite your friends, you know, next week. And I thought to myself, why would I want to invite my friends to my church when I, as a believer, can't even ask questions? <clears throat> a lot of studies show that some of the, the top six to ten reasons young people leave the church, one of them is because they say that the church doesn't take my questions seriously or the church is not a safe place to express my doubt. Um, and if I can just even briefly touch on doubt. Uh, doubt's not necessarily inherently a bad thing. Um, I heard someone say this once. They said, not every Christian doubts. Only the ones who take their faith seriously do. And, and, and that really resonates with me because if you think hard about any of this stuff, which we're called to do, uh, the greatest commandment includes loving God with the mind, then there are going to be questions inevitably that will come up. And, and one of the worst things as parents we can do is, is ignore or shun questions or shame someone for having questions. Um, you know, I shared that story of the young man at, at your church, and um, for the sake of time, people can go listen to that. But, you know, a, a, a young kid who was told by his church, basically, hey, sit down, shut up, and stop asking questions. And, and he was a non-believer. He was an atheist. Um, don't know where he's at today because that the, the church has chosen to just not do any apologetics. And um, I, I've just lost contact. Never they, they, I was invited by a third party to speak there and I never got invited back. Um, but, you know, it's just kind of a shame to, to, to see things like that. And, and as parents, one of the things we should do is allow our kids to have a safe place to ask questions, to express the sincere doubts. Because, first of all, doubt shows that they're actually thinking about this stuff. Yeah. which again is loving God with a mind. And on top of that, one thing that crossed my mind the other day is you can't doubt something unless you, you have an inclination or at least some sense of believing in it. Um, you know, there's things I don't believe. Uh, I, I don't believe, you know, name, name anything, you know, I don't believe aliens exist. You know, I, I don't have doubts about their existence. I just don't believe it. So right. to doubt something, it shows you at least have some type of a grasp on it that you have an inclination to at least want to believe it and even you know you see the the guy who's talking to jesus said lord i believe but help me in my unbelief so we can believe something doubt's not the opposite necessarily of belief or, or faith but it does show the person is at least wrestling with these things yeah and i think i think maybe sometimes a lot of christian parents are scared of their kids approaching with questions or doubts um, or maybe sometimes we feel ill-equipped to answer those questions. And I know you and I have talked a bit and kind of had a little bit of a similar experience for me growing up. I mean, I grew up as a pastor's son um, in a Baptist church and had a lot of questions about the faith early on. And it wasn't that uh, in, in my situation, it wasn't that my church discouraged me from asking questions. It was just that, you know, as a kid, I didn't get a lot of, of answers to those questions other than, hey, why not just believe the Bible and trust the Bible? And that's good enough. 
And, you know, in talking to people, uh, I think there's to some degree here, there's some generational differences um, where maybe a generation or two before us was a whole lot more comfortable and accepted authority in such a way as not to question as much. It was just sort of this is what the Bible says. And oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. I can believe that. We have entered into such an age of skepticism and scientism and, you know, everything has to be, you know, empirically validated that I think it's so important for, for parents to understand that kids now are very much, a, I need evidence, I need a reason, I need you to show me that this is true other than just telling me that this is true. Um, do you think that's a, an accurate assessment of kind of where we're at right now? Oh uh, Yeah, for sure. So we live in what's typically referred to as the information age, but ironically, it's, it's probably more accurate to say the misinformation age. Right. Um, you know, growing up, so there's, I believe it's a, a, the book by Jay Warner Wallace and Greg Kokel. And, you know, shameless plug, we'll have Jay Warner Wallace at, at this conference in Orange, April 2nd. Um, him and Sean McDowell wrote a book called So the Next Generation May Know. And in that, they, they uh, give a few different categories with respect to technology. Um, and and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. You have what we can call um, people who are just foreign to technology. So we have these digital foreigners, if you will who did not grow up around technology. And these are the people who are, you know, really up in age, maybe don't have too many years left on this earth, but you know, they're the ones who don't know how to work anything or use a computer. Um, then you have uh, people like, uh, you know, my generation, your generation who were uh, digital immigrants where we grew up. I remember when email came about and I first yeah. got my email address and, and email was like the hottest thing, you know, you were, that was the newest, coolest thing. Um, contrast that with a, a Gen Z today thinks email is an outdated uh, system. Uh, you know? yeah. So it was around like when I um, I remember still having dial up Internet where it took a long time just for it to start. I mean, it would take almost 10 minutes just for the Internet to start. Nowadays, young people, they pull up their phone and they're, they have access to the Internet in seconds. Now, we are digital immigrants. So we had to learn how to integrate this technology into our lives, and it's constantly changing. Um, Versus someone like my son, who is a what we would call a digital native. My son's only four. My daughter's thirteen, but my son he's he's still learning how to you know put uh, uh, accurate, adequate sentences together. But before he could even talk, he knew how to work an iPhone. He knew how to swipe. He knew how to change YouTube videos. Now here's a crazy thing: um, is that good or bad? I don't know. Uh, no one does because it's so new. The technology is so new. We don't even know what it does to the brain yet. And that's, that's, there's something kind of scary about that. Um, but uh, of course, any and every tool inherently is not good or bad. It's how you use it. Right. Now I say all that to say, given that we have digital natives, because we live in a time right now where it's, it's a unique time in history that, that there won't be one like this because you have all three of these categories living together at the same time. You know, in 100 years, there won't be any digital immigrants. We'll all be gone. It'll all be digital natives. But right now, you have the foreigners, the immigrants, and the natives. And we're trying to learn to communicate with each other. And there's so much talking past each other. Uh, if, if you or I were to preach a sermon right now to a group of, you know, a few hundred students, they could Google what you're saying as you're talking and see whether or not, you know, if what you're saying is true. Right. Now, this has brought up about a lot of skepticism uh, with, with various things because there's so much information coming at you. Um, like you were saying, when we were growing up, you know, you, you would hear your preacher say something, you would just trust him. 
And if you wanted to fact check him, you'd have to go to the library and, you know, rent, check out some encyclopedias. Now you can do it on your phone. Yeah. And then you have, again, so many different opinions and so much influence in the culture. Uh, and uh, one last thing I'll say with respect to that is um, <clears throat> with, with social media isn't very social. It, it, it can actually separate us. What, what's odd is you can walk into a, a youth group where, you know, you're supposed to be fellowshipping and, and you know, being together and everyone's on their phones. Um, there's no connection there. You're, you're disconnected from the people that are actually around you. So what was meant to bring us closer together, ironically, has actually pushed us further apart. And what that has created is it, 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 Gen Z has a lot more anxiety and depression than any other generation. They open an Instagram app and they immediately begin comparing themselves to the best of what people put out there. And most of that stuff is Photoshopped, which yeah. a lot of people don't know. When you, when you see these, you know, these uh, alleged Instagram models, they're spending lots of money to Photoshop their pictures. They're not just using their phone without filters. And, 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 but, but this younger generation is comparing that and say, well, I don't look like that. Well, I'm not having this kind of fun. Or, and there's a lot more to say there. The point is, though, Gen Z is dealing with a lot. Millennials um, as well, Gen Z especially, they have so much information at their fingertips. Pornography is a click away. Yeah. And again, it took me 10 to 15 minutes just to turn on the internet. So you're not just dealing with misinformation. You're dealing with a lot of spiritual baggage, a lot of emotional baggage. And studies show that most of your doubts tend to come when you're mentally fatigued. Yeah. So if, if, you know, if people listening, they could just introspect and think, when do I have most of my doubts? Well, they're at night, usually when you're laying in bed, because it's the end of the day, you're mentally exhausted. And that's when doubts start creeping in. And, and now apply this when you wake up 30 minutes after you wake up and you're, you've been on Instagram for 30 minutes, you know, you, you, you get this doubt occurring more often. So more than ever, we need to be able to equip our young people with answers and, and responses as to, again, not just what we believe, but why we believe it. Yeah. And I think in that sea of misinformation and them able to fact check, if you will, everything you say on the spot, there are also people in the opposite camp evangelizing that there is no God. I know TikTok is pretty rife with people that make videos saying, oh, here's why Christianity is, is false or, or it's been debunked. And so not only do we have to actively answer their questions, but we also have to give them an apologetic and you know some rational thought as far as how to respond to skeptics because they're going to encounter skeptics uh, you know, around every corner. And so, yeah, so it's absolutely important that as parents, we are, you know, versed in why, why is Christianity true? We, we believe it's true, but why do we know it's true and how do we convince our kids of that? And so, well, let me ask you this, Eric. I know the, the current statistic is uh, three out of four kids leave the church by, by college. And I've, I've read um, Mama Bear Apologetics, I believe it's Hillary Farrar, and a couple other authors in there, they talk about that that trend is happening now as early as middle school and junior high, where students make up their mind that they don't believe in God early on, but they're still maybe compelled to go to church by their parents. But, but before college even gets here, they've made up their mind that they're no longer going to be Christians. Um, do you have any insight on, you know, what what is contributing to so many kids walking away from the church? I know we've talked a little bit about one, we need to give them a safe place to answer their questions. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. Right now, I'm teaching Awanas on Wednesday nights, the large group. And so I had fifth and sixth graders for about 30 minutes. And one girl in the back asked a question. She said, hey, is it is it a sin if sometimes I doubt that all this is true? 
And so I asked the rest of the class, I said, I want all of y'all to raise your hands. How many of y'all sometimes doubt whether what we talk about or whether Christianity is true? And literally every kid in that classroom raises their hands. And yeah. so with those fifth and sixth graders, we give them the freedom every Wednesday night. If we don't get to the lesson, we don't get to the lesson. Ask your questions. And so we've That's said so, so far that one really important thing is giving kids the freedom to ask questions both in home and in church. That so we shouldn't be scared of those questions because we have the truth. Um, and so there's no reason for us as parents to be fearful because we have the truth on our sides. But what else do you feel like might be contributing? Or are there anything specifically that might be contributing to so many kids just having this exodus away from, from truth and from Christianity? Yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned that statistic because you're right. Um, you know, it's not like it happens overnight. It usually starts and, and sometimes they're already gone, so to speak, uh, mentally at least gone from the faith since middle school. Um, and, and, and I, I think it's, it's just kind of just alludes back to what I said. They're, they're dealing with a lot more mentally. Uh, um, there's some shallowness going on to where, uh, things are more superficial, you know, um, back then you, you, you grew up and, you know, you're looking for a job, why to support your family, to, to take care of your responsibilities and all these things. Whereas nowadays it's, I mean, consider this, you can, you can be a, a rich, famous person by making dumb videos on YouTube or TikTok. Yeah. In other words, the, the level of responsibility is just not what it used to be. Now I'm not saying this to dog on the millennial or Gen Z generation. I'm a millennial myself. I'm saying that because we need to understand where this is coming from and take it seriously. Uh, First Chronicles chapter 12, what's interesting is you have this um, list of people who came to help King David in battle, and it begins to list all kinds of like incredible uh, uh, numbers of people and things like that. But then it says, Second uh, Chronicles 12, 19, but it says some from the tribe of Manasseh, um, where is it at? No, I lost 12. Chapter 12, verse 32, it says, men of Ezekar who understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. Now, what's interesting is when you look above that, here are just to name a few, here are some of the people it describes. Verse 24 says, men from Judah with shield and spear, there was about 6,800. Um, men from Simeon, uh, warriors ready for battle, over 7,000. And then it gives other, other numbers, one group as big as 20,000. And it talks about how how they're good with with uh, with swords, with spears, and it talks about their weapons. So the biggest group is about twenty thousand or so. No, excuse me, one hundred and twenty thousand. The smallest group, interestingly though, is these men from Issachar. And the only description it gives of them, it says that they are men who understood the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. And there were only two hundred of them. It almost seems to imply here that while it's great to have these other guys with weapons and who knew how to fight, were big, strong guys. When you understand the times, that gives you an idea of what you need to do. And if you have that, that's almost like half the battle. You don't need that many guys. 200 versus something like 120,000. So just understanding what's going on uh, is, is, in a sense, half the battle. And again, when you have all what's going on with the... Um, the 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 comparison the the social media stuff going on uh, the lack of responsibility in many ways you know it, it just it just it's like the perfect storm so to speak to create all this uh, instances of doubt and the more we can do like what you're doing i think that's so good to, to just give them a space because it shows that we're taking this stuff seriously you know another thing too i'll, I'll say this because this transition has is is and has happened, and like I said, we live in this unique time where 
you have the digital foreigners, immigrants, and digital natives. <clears throat> you know, something like my parents' generation, like you said, they just kind of believe what the preacher said, and and you know that's sad. Now, sure, you still have some, but like my mother would, you know, go to scripture and look these things up, and you know, I think I get a lot of that from her, that kind of uh, mentality that that wants to look into things. Yeah. But when when you think about that, as I mentioned at, at the service. There was a study not too long ago that came out that said that the biblical illiteracy amongst the young generations is like really low, like they don't know scripture. But then they did another survey about a year or two ago, and they did it with the older generation. And shockingly, there was not much of a difference. Yeah. So, yeah, it makes sense that my generation and the younger don't know scripture, what the Bible teaches, because, well, look who taught us. (laughs) Right. So when you have these people raising these digital natives and digital immigrants who are asking questions, you get this kind of sort of disconnect. Um, I have people a lot who after um, when I go speak somewhere, preach, you know, I I like to offer material stuff that I sell, you know, some of my classes I've taught and it's not uncommon for parents or grandparents to approach me and say, I have a daughter, son, nephew, niece, whatever, relative who does not believe in God. What should I buy for them to listen to? And I got this from Jay Warner Wallace. I heard him say this once and I agree. And he says, don't buy them any of this stuff, at least not for them. Buy it for you yes. because they're not going to they're not going to want to listen to me, but they'll listen to you. So you learn this stuff. And, and, and also the mentality seems to be. Well, if I just buy this, I've done my job. Well, no, you one, you've got to learn this stuff, too. And, and three. It, it, it it's not just information relation having relational experiences with these people walking with them through this uh reading a book perhaps with them you know that that does far more than just handing them a book or a dvd you know that, that which they probably won't even watch and same thing with the book you know you can't just give it to them expect and read it you know commit some time to sit with them read through it with them and, and that alone again it goes a much long a further way than what it would if you just gave it to them, assuming they would even read something like that in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And so so what I'm hearing you say as far as apologetics goes and even Christianity, there's really no room for us to be lazy. And so if, if we want other people to know the Lord um, and to really understand that Christianity is reasonable and rational, we have to be willing to put in the work. And, and if I can pick on our generation here a little bit, I think sometimes the problem with, with us and, and us as parents is we're so overworked and so busy chasing the American dream that we don't leave ourselves enough time to study and also to invest in our kids the way that we should. And uh, so I think we really have to kind of look at some of our motivations and look at what's important to us uh, if we're going to truly invest in our kids and and be parents that are unapologetic, um, you know, unapologetically apologetic, if you if you will, you know. Uh, and so I think we just have to be willing to to definitely put in the time, like you say, uh, because they are going to face so much on on every level of, of bombardment um, outside of our homes. And I talk to, you know, I talk to Christians sometimes and they, they say, well, you know what, I have my kids in church on Wednesday, in church on Sunday, and maybe they're even in a Christian school. And I say, that's great, but I don't think that's enough. I think if we're not pouring into them at home, we're, we're not doing our very best to prepare them for, for the onslaught of attacks against Christianity and our faith that they're going to face in the world. Absolutely. So, um, and I'm glad you mentioned that. So I'll be 
uh, hopefully coming out with the book later this year. And in that, I give an analogy about um, when I talk about what, what I've heard Moreland call having the eyes to see, because um, I'll just refer again to the talk, uh, the, the sermon I gave at, at your church Sunday, where people can go listen to. And I talked about strongholds in our culture, which in, in philosophy and apologetics, we might call those worldviews. The Bible talks about strongholds. Um, but one of the things is that you need to have eyes to recognize these things, because part of the problem, too, is, you know, uh, even if you have your kids in church every Sunday and Wednesday and they go to a Christian school, they're getting a few hours, give or take, of, you know, scripture, Bible, Christianity. But how many hours are they getting of secular culture and influence? Well, tons more, like it's incomparable. So even sitting and watching a movie, you know, you can use those opportunities maybe after the movie, you know, or depending on, in, on you know, how, how, how you, you've set up some, maybe some kind of agreement with your kids. But let's say after the movie on the drive home, you know, you may bring up something like, hey, you notice how, you know, they, they said this and that. What do you guys think of that? Or you notice how they portrayed this, you know, where you're touching on these influences, um, as, as opposed to letting them kind of just marinate and sink in. And uh, another thing, going back to the having eyes to see, I, I give this analogy. <clears throat> so suppose, so I admittedly don't know too much about cars. Uh, I know enough to change the oil if I need to, although I'd rather take it somewhere and I do. Um, but I mean, if something really messed up, I wouldn't know what to do. Now contrast that with my father-in-law, who was not only a mechanic, but used to own his own shop at one point. Now, if you were to put me and my father-in-law in front of a car and open up the hood, we would both see an engine. Um, and if you ask me what I saw, I could say, well, I, I, there's a spark plug. Uh, this is the engine part. Um, that looks like a shaft maybe, uh, but everything else is like, it's a, it's a rubber tube thing and a metal thing here. If you ask my father-in-law what he saw, he can name every single piece like easily. And he could identify uh, everything that's, that's in the engine. Now here's a difference. Although our eyes both saw an engine, his eyes saw much more than mine did. But it wasn't because our eyes don't work the same. It was because he had more knowledge of what he was looking at. Right. So the more you know, the more you can see what's going on around you. Now, running with the analogy, <clears throat> if my car were to break, like if I hear a ticking noise, I, I, for the most part, honestly, I just ignore it. I shouldn't, but you know. Most part, I'll ignore it until it becomes a, a pragmatic problem. Right. But as long as my car can get me from point A to point B, it's good enough. Now, if my father-in-law heard a ticking noise, he wants to know immediately what's going on because he knows that something that could be a quick fix now will save trouble to something that could be a potentially really bad or maybe, God forbid, even a fatal mistake later on in the future. So while I'm happy to just go to from point A to point B, He's saying, no, that there's something that needs to be addressed. Now, when it comes to evangelism and, and our culture and our kids, here, here's the difference, the, the big difference. If my car breaks down, if I'm negligent, I can always take it to a mechanic. And as long as I have the money, I can say, hey, open up the hood and fix it. But you can't take your son or daughter or loved one to an apologist and say, hey, they, they've just identified as atheists. Can you open up their hood and fix them? It's not how it works. Yeah. So at some point we have to ask ourselves, are we dealing with cars or people? Because if we're dealing with cars, well, then as long as you, your bank account can afford it, sure, be as negligent as you want. But if we're dealing with souls, with people that we love and eternity is at stake, then maybe we had pay more, had better pay more attention. You know, maybe, maybe we had listened for the ticking sound because I can assure you it's, it's pretty loud. Because yeah. if you know what you're looking for, it's loud and it's there and it's evident. 
And, and many churches and, and places, there's already been breakdowns, you know, again, using the analogy. So when we, we, we encounter these things, we have to know what we're looking for and be able to address these with our kids. Yeah. And again, that goes back to us educating ourselves some and, and being diligent, you know, study to show yourself approved. Um, always be prepared to have a reason or a defense for the hope that you have, First Peter 3.15. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned uh, just sort of the, the disparity between the amount of time they get of Christian instruction, between the amount of secular influence in their lives. And so I think as parents, we have to be really careful to instruct our kids that there's the worldview constantly being forced on them in some capacity. So any media that they're consuming, there's some inherent worldview behind that. And so teaching our kids, you know, I'm not one that wants to say abstain from all of this because eventually it's, they're going to run into it. So I want my kids to be exposed to things, um, but I want them to have the tools to say, oh, this is, this is anti-gospel, this is anti-Christian, or this is, you know, the worldview being presented in this film or, or video is illogical and here's why. And so I think it's for us as parents being able to consume media and understand what's being communicated between the lines behind that. And instructing our kids to do that as well. And so, you know, I, I, I want to learn to do a better job at this. But when me and my kids watch a film, you know, afterwards, we'll, we'll pick out a few things and say, hey, what was that about? You know, let's, let's talk about this. And, uh, you know, media makes a great starting point for, for conversations. And so using the, some of that to, to our advantages. Also, too, I wanted to ask you this, Eric, because we're, we're talking about, you know, as, as parents uh, preparing our kids and being apologetically minded, uh, how often do you engage college students or minister at, at universities? And if, if that's something pretty frequent, what would you say like the climate is in university right now towards Christianity? Yeah, good question. Um, and I'll, uh, funny you ask, I'm actually tonight, um, I, as I may have mentioned, um, I'll be going to the University of Dallas, uh, University of Texas here in Dallas. Uh, um, and I'll be doing what, what, uh, I've heard what I've called, and it's been called the atheist role play. Um, and what I do is I, I, the, the students know I'm Christian, but, and, and I'm doing this with a gr group of, it's a Christian group that invited me. Um, and I, I put on fake glasses and say, when I put on these fake glasses, I'm going to play the role of an atheist. And we'll do this for about 30 minutes. And then we'll do like a debrief. Um, and I've done this with pastors. I've done this with youth pastors. I've done this with church leaders. I've done this with grownups. Virtually every time it does not go well. And one of the first things I ask is, do you think you adequately represented Christ if I were really an atheist? And do you think that you gave me answers that would have you know, given me something to think about? Um, I don't think I've ever heard a yes to that in, in, these, in these things, but I say all that to say, um, so yeah, I, I'm, I, I, I could be there a lot more, but as much as I can, yes, I, I'm at, at college campuses. I was even um, a few months ago, went to a public high school. I was invited by an atheist teacher to talk to the students there, and that was really uh, uh, fun and, and interesting to do. Um, I, I suppose every every place is going to be different, of course. Um, yeah. But I've been to, and I won't mention the names, but I've been to Christian college campuses and spoken at chapel services. And afterwards, I've had people come up to me and tell me, hey, thanks for sharing. You know, some people here don't know this, but I'm an atheist or I'm agnostic, and the, they're going to Christian schools, uh, even some schools, because uh, uh, take, take a place like Baylor, you know, they have a good medical program. Well, you'll have people going there, not because it's a Christian school, but because of the good programs they have. So you will have non-believers at some of these places. And, and it, it just kind of depends. Sometimes you have this postmodern attitude of like, well, that's kind of true for you, but not for me. 
sometimes you have this uh, pragmatic, which kind of ties into the postmodern of, well, I'm not going to, con- I don't believe God exists, but I'm not going to convince someone that they, that God doesn't exist because, Hey, it makes them happy. And it's just like, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, for some people, you know, in this type of typically tends to be, be like the engineers or science majors, you know, they have this reductionistic mentality where you have this scientism of, um, well, you know, I need scientific quote evidence for something or, or even as far as, you know, non-believers who think, well, there's nothing immaterial, you know, type of naturalism. So I, in one college campus I went to, uh, it, the room was pretty packed and I, I gave a presentation for like 20, 30 minutes. And then we did Q and a for like an hour. And then after that, the students stuck around for an hour and there's just like a line of people wanting to talk or ask questions. And I had some friends there with me and, you know, we just kind of, um, I, I guess took people's questions individually after it was all over, but I'll say this, they, they might be distracted, but they're not dumb. Yeah. And they have questions, genuine questions. And that, that's really what I get most of the time is a lot of, a lot of inquiry or questions or pushback. Sometimes it's not even in a hostile way. Sometimes yeah. they're honestly asking. Sometimes they're like, well, my friend, atheist friend said this, or, or why well, I saw this on the internet, or how would this relate to that? Here's another curveball that, that we haven't really had to deal with, um, at least not when I was growing up in a serious way, the question of transgenderism. Yeah. You know, can someone be a, a boy in a girl's body or vice versa? Can someone's sex uh, or gender be changed? Um, is Can that be fluid like that? Well, you know, all these are questions that someone might not think is, quote, apologetics, but these are, in real senses, strongholds and barriers to evangelism and, and to someone perhaps bowing the knee to Christ. And the first thing I'd say is we need to learn how to receive the questions. Yeah. before we even try to answer them. I, I was speaking at a youth group once and uh, during Q&A, after, after it was already a Q&A, but afterwards, uh, three, three of the uh, the youth boys said, hey, can we ask you a question? But it's kind of private. I said, sure. And we were inside the sanctuary and they said, well, can we go outside the sanctuary? And I'm like, sure, I hope, is everything okay? They're like, yeah. And basically they said this, uh, they said, we have a friend, he didn't come today, but we've, he's been our best friend you know, since middle school, whatever. These are high schoolers. And they said, but he's recently, he came out as gay. I said, okay, so, so what's the question? They said, well, what should we do? How, you know, should we keep hanging out with them? How should we act towards him? How, how should we act around him? How should we treat him? And my response was this. I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you have friends in this youth group that you know are having premarital sex with their girlfriends? And they said, yes. And my question was, um, and you know that that that's that's a sin, right? And they said, of course, yes. And I said, well, how do you treat them? And they said, well, we still hang out with them. I said, okay, right. Well, however you treat that friend that's having premarital sex, treat them the same. Treat your gay friend the same way that you treat them, because yeah, they're sinning or 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 they're they're struggling with something, but it doesn't mean you treat them any different. Now, that's not to say you affirm what they do, obviously, but you know, point is simply. We have to learn that just because people may struggle with things we don't doesn't make it any less of a struggle for them, or, or like I said, a, an obstacle. And you find this in colleges. There's there's a lot of I'll call it propaganda being pushed. Um, you know, a, a professor in a college has the sway and power to kind of how can I say it? If you disagree with me almost as if you're going to fill the class. Now there's ways around it. That's a whole nother discussion, but you can answer a test question 
that 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 the teacher is asking in the test, even if you don't agree with the answer, right? You, you you're you're taking a test based on what you remember or know or what you've learned. So there there's ways around of, in other words, you can pass a class without having to agree with what your teacher's saying. I did it my first two philosophy classes, um, but yeah. So it, uh, the kid, but suffice it to say, the kids in college they're hungry to learn. They're they're open to learning. They're open to having conversations. Sure, you have those that may be hostile or aggressive or just wanna just wanna argue. But I, to be honest, I've seen some of the most impact done on college campuses because, you know, they're not, it's not a church, you know, they feel a lot more safe, relaxed and comfortable. Yeah. And I've seen minds changed there uh, many times. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's good to know for us because maybe sometimes we think, well, once they, you know, graduate high school and get into college, maybe it's a, maybe it's a lost cause or maybe it's too late. I don't think it's ever too late. Um, to to engage people with the truth and, you know, um, with, with apologetics. But I also think it's valuable for us with us talking about those three out of four kids leaving the church by the time they get into college and the university setting right now being an, an atheist um, sort of making machine or just affirming those ideas. I think it just really brings it back around to us as parents that we really need to prepare our kids because I, I graduated from a Christian, from a Baptist college, East Texas Baptist university 18 years ago. And there were so many bad ideas peddled in, um, in classrooms. Now fast forward nearly 20 years and think about a secular college. Um, your, your students are going to be bombarded with um, just false ideas, these strongholds um, that second Corinthians talks about. And so what better time to prepare them for what's to come than right now while we have them at home. Um, and so I think, again, it just reminds us of the importance um, of us as parents investing in our kids and teaching them not only the Bible, but also how to think well at the same time and to challenge poor thinking. Uh, let, let me ask you one more, one more question, Eric. How do you feel like the church, what do you feel like the church needs to change when it comes to ministering um, to students? And, and kind of going back to something you said a minute ago, um, talking about the atheist role play, I think a lot of times people think that apologetics is just something to engage atheists. Um, and it's so much broader than that. Uh, and so certainly we want to engage the non-believer or the, or the atheist, but we also want to engage people of different faiths. Um, we want to engage skeptics, people that have questions. I think apologetics, part of it as well as us as believers, strengthening our own faith and growing our own faith. Um, also, you mentioned, you know, sexual ethics. Uh, I think a lot of times we have students come to us and say, well, what is the big deal if my friend is gay and loves somebody of the same sex? Um, if they're committed and they really love one another, what's the problem? So a part of apologetics is tearing down all those strongholds. And so it's well beyond just engaging atheists, which is a pretty, you know, it's a growing percentage of our population, but a smaller subset. So what do you feel like the church needs to do differently when it comes to equipping students and ministering to students? Yeah, so great question. Um, a, a few things. So when I, I remember, and I even just put up the article, there's a Babylon Bee article that came out um, a, a year or so ago. And here's a headline. It says, Congregation prays for graduating senior to be protected from basic secular arguments that they never bothered to prepare her for. And, yeah. and it, it's if it'd be funny if it wasn't so sad. And, and it basically says, you know, we have our, one of our first uh, graduates and, you know, We've never prepared her, given her any apologetic uh, um, tools, 
but we're going to say a five minute prayer before she graduates, before she leaves off to college. And we're going to help that prepares her for everything she's going to encounter out there. Yes. And what, what's sad is, you know, you don't send a, a soldier off to, off to battle without basic training, much less weapons. And yet all we give our students are five minute prayers and, you know, a gift bag and, you know, some balloons and a, and a graduation party. And we send them off to probably the bigger spiritual battle they'll ever be in. Um, and, and and so first I'd say, let's just start doing apologetics in our churches. Let's start, let's start engaging in these things. Um, and, and I like what you, you said too, um, how apologetics is not just for atheists. It's also not just about debating. You know, I, I get that sometimes in that right. I cringe when, if a pastor introduces me as the guy who debates atheists, you know, it, it, I, I cringe at that because that's, that's such a small part of what apologetics can be, but not everyone's called to debate. I've, I've mentored and discipled some apologists and I've told them, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're called to debate or, you know, you don't have to debate to be an apologist. Um, but on top of that, uh, I, as, as you know, um, a few years ago, I did a discussion with Simon Brigancade on apologetic method, and um, he takes a presupposition approach, but we, we won't get into that. But I, I bring it up because at the end, the host said, okay, who, who's your audience in mind? When you're doing or studying apologetics, who are you trying to reach or, or who do you have in mind that you're doing this for? And I answered first, and my response was, well, first and foremost, I do it because I need it because the Bible yes. commands me to, yes. meaning even if I never, ever meet an atheist in my entire life, even if I'm never invited to do a debate, the Bible still commands me to do and learn this stuff. Um, on, on top of that, this is far more than just, uh, um, it, it now has lots of application in evangelism, but it also is for the believer. I mean, how many times have I, have you or I ever sat in church and the preacher or pastor says something Everybody around you says amen, and you're just kind of like, I mean, I'll say amen, but I'm not sure if I buy that. Yeah, you know. Um, and, and here's why I mentioned that: the, the a lot of times, some sometimes the answer people get, you know, if I'm doubting or I'm struggling, I hear, "Well, just have more faith." That word "faith" has been uh, misapplied and abused by both Christians and, and non-believers. And what's typically meant by that is like a blind faith. And, yeah. and there, there's, uh, and I want to take a, a few minutes to unpack this here. So first of all. What is faith? Biblically speaking, faith is a trust or confidence in something. And the thing about faith is if faith is trust or confidence in, before you can have trust in something, you first have to have knowledge about the thing in question. So we can say before you have trust in, you have to first know that. So, for example, the common example is use of a chair. Before I can trust in the chair's ability to hold me up, I have to first know that it is made of durable material before I can trust in the chair's, let's say, stability or structure. I have to know that it has four stable legs and before yada, yada, yada. So if faith is a trust or confidence, which is a Greek word pistis, then we can then we know that. And even biblically speaking, faith is based on knowledge. It's based on what we know, not what we don't know. So here's the application. Your level of knowledge about God in these things is going to be directly correlated with your the, the amount of faith you have. So if I believe that, let, let's take something like prayer. If I believe that God answers prayer, and, and I believe that prayer makes a genuine difference, and I've actually studied or read up on it, or, or you read some books on it, heard some lectures on it, which I have, boy, I can tell you after, after accumulating all this knowledge about prayer and how it works, my faith is bolstered 
to the point to where um, it makes me want to pray more, right? And the more knowledge I have about, again, prayer, then the more I'm going to pray. Why? Because I know that, that X, Y, and Z. So I have more trust in this. And when we look at this, um, you can ask yourself this question. How much do you pray? Well, that's going to be a reflection of how much you know and trust. And again, what is trust? It's faith. It's a confidence in, in these things. So same thing with anything, whether it's prayer, healing. Um, so faith is, is a trust and confidence that is based on knowledge. So the more I know, the more I can trust. When you're talking to someone, let's say they're non-believers, well, maybe they don't believe in God or aren't ready to put their trust in God because maybe they need more knowledge about X, Y, or Z. And that's where you step in. Um, one, one thing I'll say in relation to that, look at the, the very popular story about doubting Thomas. <clears throat> um, when Jesus approaches Thomas, well, prior to this, Thomas is doubting. Everyone knows the story. Now, what's detrimental, I think, when, when people use this for a sermon is there's two responses Jesus gives in response to Thomas's doubt. And what I hear most of the time is people focusing on the second response that Jesus gives, which is blessed are those who do not see and believe. But let me put it this way. When one of Jesus's best friends, someone he loved tremendously, that was doubting and struggling, what did he do? Did he hit him over the head with the Bible and say, just have more faith? No. He met him where he's at, and the first response is he lifted his robe, showed him the nail prints, and said, touch. Now, if we want to be like Jesus, then what should we do when we encounter people who doubt, especially those that we love? Well, we, metaphorically speaking, show them the evidence that they're asking for. That's the most loving thing you can do with someone who doubts, because again, doubt is not the opposite of belief or trust. But there can be struggles, and your, our job is to stand beside them and help them and show them what they're looking for, and, and in that, grow their knowledge of who God is, and in, the, and in that, by default, it'll begin to grow their faith in God and who he is. Yeah, man, absolutely. I think that's a, a good way to look at it, um, you know, looking at Jesus's interaction with, with Thomas. You know, and, and, and Jesus, when he called his disciples, he always showed them who he was um, before that before that calling. And so they had something to base that faith on and step out on. Um, so the idea is that 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 faith is not something that's blind. And so just to kind of recap a little bit about what we've talked about today, we've said, you know, uh, for us as parents to to um, kind of place an emphasis on apologetics and, and importance there is we need to allow our kids to ask questions, both in church and at home, to encourage questions, um, that doubts aren't necessarily a bad thing. It shows you that, they're, that they do believe and that they're thinking things through. Um, but if we're going to let them ask questions, we also have to be prepared to answer those questions or at least work with them to answer those questions. So that means we have to spend time doing what we should be doing as parents, and that's growing and learning in our faith as well. We've also said that we have to know the times because there's a lot that our that our kids face um, to be aware of the different arguments out there and what they're going to face and how technology impacts them. And also to make sure that we prepare them both scripturally and how to think critically. And of course, there are books that can be read. There is, you know, um, videos that can be watched. And so the main thing there is that we're continuing to feed ourselves. And so, Eric, is there anything that you would add to that list as we start to kind of wrap things up? Anything else that you feel like as parents we should know, you know, how to live uh, apologetic lifestyles with our kids and instruct them there? Any last um, any last thoughts or words from you? 
Um, yeah, every, every kid's going to be different. Uh, every kid's going to have different struggles, different questions. Um, I, I, growing up, I had, I, and I still do have ADHD and, you know, um, communicating to me may have been a little bit more challenging than communicating with someone who didn't, um, you, your kid's unique, but yeah. whatever your kid has, I can assure you that one, it didn't take God by surprise, um, that, that children are a gift from God and, Pray that the Holy Spirit guide you, give you wisdom and discernment on how to talk to your children, how to relate to them, how to speak to them. At the end of the day, sure, we want to be their friends, but we also want to, uh, you know, that there's, and again, this is going to be different for everyone, so there's no cookie cutter answer, but, you know, yeah, we want to shelter them from things of the world, but at the same time, we don't want to put a blindfold over them where they're just, you know, ignorance is bliss kind of uh, mentality because they will encounter it at some point. Right. So don't be afraid of questions or doubts or letting or, uh, again with with uh, with some moderation and supervision, allowing them to be exposed to some things in this world that, you know, that that goes contrary to what to believe, but be there so that you can help them wrestle with these things when they're exposed to it, because it's really not a question of whether or not they're going to be exposed to these things. The question is. When they are exposed to it, will they have answers? Will they have someone there they can rely on or trust? And, and on top of that, um, be patient. Uh, at the end of the day, we can't save anybody. We didn't save ourselves. Right. Uh, everyone has to make their own decision. What you can do is be there, provide the knowledge, provide the wisdom, provide the information and content, work through it with them. And as I said, that's how we grow our faith. That's why it's interesting. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And if it's in, if without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if faith, and if faith requires knowledge, well then absolutely my people perish for lack of knowledge. So be patient, be loving, uh, um, pray the Holy spirit guide you lots of, lots of prayer, but at the same time, you know, it, it there has to be at some point where just trying and starting, um, there, there's a, as at least children's books, there's a Dr. Craig wrote some children's books called What is God Like? I read those to my son. On yeah, we have those too. Yeah, great books. And even even you as a parent might have questions after reading those, because even though it's written for kids, you know, it's got some some good stimulating things for discussion there. Um, and I think those are great resources. So maybe you don't know this, all the answers. I don't. But what happens is the more you learn, the more questions you'll have. And that's a good thing. It is. Because there are because, see, there are things that I know I don't know. So mm -hmm. I, there are things I know. There are things I know that I know. But then there are things that I know that I don't know. In other words, if you were to ask me, uh, what's the formula for for this you know, particular equation? I'd say, I don't know. And I know that I don't know it. Yeah. But if you were to ask me a different question, like, you know, what is A, B or C or D without going to a specific example? Not only do I not know the answer, but I didn't know I didn't know the answer. Those are the dangerous ones. Um, and the reason I'm not trying to go to specific example, usually when I give this, I, I talk about it like an attribute of God. Um, let's just say, okay, maybe just a quick example. Like, what does it mean for God to be omnipresent? Does it mean that he's like butter on bread, that it's kind of spread out everywhere? Uh, does it mean that he's like within everything or, or, you know, he takes up the space? Well, if that's the case, then there's more of God in my living room than my bathroom because my living room is much bigger than my bathroom. Right. Wait a minute. Wouldn't that imply that, that God is divided in some sense and not fully present? So what does it mean for God to be omnipresent? Now, before I ask that question, 
you know, some people thought maybe they knew what that meant to be omnipresent, but maybe after my questions, not only do they not know the answer, they didn't know they didn't know the answer. Sometimes when you learn, part of it is not just getting answers, but learning that you don't know answers to certain questions, to, to going from not knowing that you don't know to now knowing you don't know. Because when that happens, now you now it's fun. Now where the fun starts, you get to look it up. You get to look at books. You, you get to look at what people are saying, what the, what the Christian philosophers and scholars have said about this stuff. Um, and and we, we get to just dive deeper into the character and nature of who God is and learn this alongside with our children and teach it to them in a way they can understand. So yeah. starting just starting itself is going to be a huge thing. I think so. And, and everybody has to start somewhere. And I think it's unnerving sometimes when we start to find those things that we didn't know. Um, that we didn't know that we didn't know, so to speak. Um, but that's where your faith really grows is when things start to be challenged. And I've learned this, every question I've had, I've, I've prayed about, and God has been faithful to, to send me in a direction where I can grow in my understanding. And real quick, last couple of minutes, you said something I want to kind of reiterate about, you know, exposing your kids to, to some things because eventually they're going to be exposed to it. The, the way that I like to say that is I don't want to insulate my kids. I want to inoculate my kids. And so I don't want them to be insulated from every bad thing out there, but I want to teach them how to think things through and to know what God says about it and give them that, that shot, that inoculation, so that when they do encounter it in a bigger way, that they are, in fact, prepared for it. And so, um, Eric, I, I wish we had a lot more time. This has been enjoyable for me. I hope it's been enjoyable for those of us, those that listen on this podcast. Uh, but we want to thank you for your time and for our listeners. If you want to, to grow in this area, Eric Hernandez, you can catch him on his YouTube channel. Just search his name. He'll pop up. You can see debates. You can see some some instruction in apologetics, um, a lot of different stuff going on there. And so I would encourage you to check that out. But also, if you're listening to this and you have questions or maybe you want resources as, as for some books you could read or podcasts to listen to as a parent, you can email me, josh at fbco.org um, with any questions or any way that we can help you. And so, again, thank you so much for tuning in. Eric, we appreciate your time. And uh, maybe, you know, sometime in the future, we'd love to have you back. So thanks so much for what you're doing, man. Hey, thank you for having me on. It's a blessing.